Well, we are, as I said before, starting a new series this morning. I've titled the, ser- the series, What is the Gospel? And I've decided uh, on a subtitle because I-, I want this to be an important part of what we do as we go through this series over the next few weeks. Gospel, of course, means good news, right? Uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But good news is important, particularly in a time full of a lot of bad news. So my subtitle is Good news in an uncertain time. What is the gospel? Good news in an uncertain time. And this morning we're going to start off with uh, a message about really who God is. Why are we doing this series? Well, there's, there's three reasons why I wanted to do this series. The first is this. Some of you are new. Some of you uh, are, are maybe not regularly a part of our church family, and you've been watching these videos connecting either with our church or maybe even other churches online, and perhaps you're curious as you've uh, listened to messages from the Old Testament or maybe an Easter message, uh, you're, you're exploring more. What does it mean to, to be a Christian? What does it mean to know God? How do we know Him particularly through His Son, Jesus? And so this is a series that's designed to give you a clear understanding of what Christianity really is all about. What's the core message that we believe? It's called the gospel, Uh, and again, that does mean good news. So what's good about it? I wanted to present a a series that would help those of you who are new and curious explore those questions. Uh, Of course, most of you are are believers, and you say, well, why do we do a series on the gospel? Don't we talk about the gospel all the time? Haven't we already believed the gospel? And uh, the answer to those two questions are yes, but... If you look through the, the New Testament, one of the clearest messages that, that is given to believers is don't forget the gospel. We forget so easily. You know, it, whether it's when times are really good, we can depend on ourselves. That's a heart tendency of ours as still sinful fallen people to depend on ourselves and forget that it is Christ alone in whom we have our hope our sustenance, our provision, right? Or in times of difficulty, like what we're experiencing now, we can lose hope and forget what we have and who we are in Him. So this clear message of of remember the gospel. Don't, Don't forget, cling to, hold fast to that message that you first received. We need to continually do that. And so I wanted to make a clear gospel presentation again for the sake of our edification, of our growth, and for our, our, our sort of sustenance and hope. Uh, and that, that leads us to the third reason, of course, is that we are all in the midst of challenging days and we need hope. And so what I want to do is not only present the gospel, but I also want to try to talk specifically to the moment as we talk about each of these elements of that good news message, how does that speak to us in moments like this? Uh, how do we get a clear biblical worldview uh, when our world is seemingly so uh, upside down, so topsy-turvy and in chaos? So that's, that's why we're doing this series. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? Let me, let me say this. The first time that I heard a succinct presentation of the gospel... Uh, I was a a young teenager. It was a a presentation that was sort of given to me out of a tract, a little little booklet. Uh, And it was put out by Campus Crusade for Christ. The tract was called The Four Spiritual Laws. Maybe you uh, have seen or heard that. And it, it started like this. Law number one was this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
So the first time I heard the gospel, this was the starting point and the way it was presented to me. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Now, those things are all true, right? Uh, and I want to affirm those as we go through this presentation of the gospel message. But as I've grown in my faith and my understanding of the gospel, I, I see that there's something fundamentally either assumed or wrong about that first statement. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. It starts with God, but it quickly moves to me, right? He loves me and he offers a plan for my life. It's sort of a, a, sort of a, a, a me-centric uh, beginning to the message. Now, there are benefits to the gospel that have a lot to do with me and, and how they affect me, but this beginning word, God, is sort of assumed. What do I know about God? Who is God? Is there a God, right? There's sort of this assumption that I, I have this understanding already about who he is, and it moves directly then into what that means for me, but I don't think that that's a good assumption. Do we know who God is? Do we assume who God is? Maybe we have assumptions and and this sense of knowledge that's really far from who he is. How do we find out who he is? Well, we, we have to see how has he revealed himself to us. What does God say about himself? That's where we want to start this morning. So we're going to start with the gospel saying it starts with God. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a great theologian from last century, said this. He said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why does he say that? Because he's, he says this, what we think about God more than anything else will determine the trajectory of our lives. That's a profound statement. It's very true. What you think about God will determine the trajectory of your life. You either consider that there is a God and that if he is God, then he's the most important thing, and that will direct then the trajectory of your life to order yourself under who he is and what he says, right? Or if you don't believe in God, then you're going to live your life a wholly different way, right? If you reject the idea of a God consciously, that's going to determine the trajectory of your life. Or if you're somewhere in the middle, of course, if you have uh, faulty thoughts about God or, or just, you know, certain thoughts that are true but ignoring other, that will determine much of the trajectory of your life because what we think about the meaning of all things, what we think about God matters and it speaks so much about who we are. Let me start by reading to you from Psalm 46. This is a helpful revelation from God to us about how we ought to think about him. By the way, if you've been getting our midweek updates, you've noticed that I've put a, a, a quote from Psalm 46 on the bottom of those updates every week because the, the opening words are so uh, encouraging and hopeful in times of trouble like we're in now. But there's more to the psalm. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear Though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's define the gospel, the good news, the way the Bible does. Let's understand who God is. Romans is a great place to look to see how the New Testament defines the gospel. This is a letter that begins with the gospel in chapter 1, which we'll look at in a minute. I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel. And it's a book that ends in chapter 16 with another uh, sort of anchoring in the gospel. It bookends with this proclamation of the gospel and what's in the middle. Well, the gospel. But I want you to notice that in Romans, this great gospel book, it all starts with God. And here's the first thing I want us to consider. And I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 16. Here's the first thing I want you to consider about how God has revealed himself to us. There is a God who is the creator. There's a God who is the creator. He is creator which means he's also then ruler and owner of all as the creator. Look again at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, in this gospel message, in this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now there's a lot of things that we can unpack in these verses, these two verses, but I want you to recognize that that Paul begins with God. He says this gospel is both the power of God and it also reveals the righteousness of God. Paul identifies God as the initiator and the power source of the gospel message itself. It is God's gospel, in other words. It starts with him. And then he quickly tells us something of vital importance about the nature and the position of this God. Look at verse 20. For his, God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since, what? The creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
Therefore, we are without excuse if we deny that or suppress that. He's pointing us to creation as a, as a revelation of who God is, right? So this verse is often used, and rightfully so, to tell us something about creation itself and or even us, but it's important to discern here that creation isn't the point here. It's that creation is pointing to the point. What does creation point to? It points to a creator. There is a creator. That's Paul's point here. And it's not just his clever idea. It's the way the entire Bible begins to tell the story of the gospel. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I know that's a familiar phrase. It's a familiar passage. But I wonder if we look at it the right way enough. It's not just here for chronological purposes. In the beginning, he created and he started with the heavens and the earth, right? No, it's not just for chronological purposes, but there's something authoritative being communicated here. God spoke. He spoke and the heavens and the earth were formed. That's not just an act of creation. It is that, but it's Notice, it's an act of obedience. God spoke, and they respond. The heavens and the earth, create; they're created. They form. They come together here, right? God commanded, and the elements obeyed. The implication here is that God as creator is supreme over all of the works of his hands. Everything that we know, everything that we see and, and hear and smell and taste and touch doesn't exist on its own, and it doesn't exist for itself, but rather it exists for the sole purpose of its makers, its creators, bidding. Now that's, I know, a, a statement that, that, that's under um, objection, especially in the modern era, right? This, this sort of uh, assumption that there's a God who's a creator, even if we disagree about who that God might be, that assumption itself has, has kind of gone, you know, out of, out of vogue, out of fashion in especially the modern West, right? Many people would say this, this whole notion of, of a God or creation just doesn't sit well with me. It, it seems silly to me. I believe in science. We hear that a lot, right? We're hearing that a lot right now, as we're seeing this pandemic, a lot of people are saying, you know, I believe in science. That's where we need to stake our, 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 our hope. That's where we need to invest our energy. Well, I want to say this. I believe in science too, okay? I believe in science too. I'm thankful for science. But remember, what's the purpose of science? What's science's objective? It's to seek the truth, not to suppress it. And what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1 is that the, the problem is that we've suppressed the truth about God. You know, it's interesting, there's a, there's a, a scientist named Charles Misler, a brilliant scientist who was reflecting on an even more brilliant scientist that we're all familiar with, Albert Einstein. And he was reflecting on the, the, the reason why Albert Einstein had no use for organized religion. 
And he said something very interesting about Einstein. He said, I believe Einstein was basically a very religious man. I, th I don't think he was is irreligious or unreligious. I think he was a religious man, but he didn't have use for organized religion. Why? He said, because Einstein must have heard what the church was saying about God and thought they were blaspheming. <laughs> Einstein is this guy who's gazed into the universe. Einstein is a man who's seen with his own eyes wondrous things, right? If you have any sense of, of, of just the, the galaxy that we live in, this galaxy that would take 100,000 light years to traverse from one end to the other. There's billions and billions of stars just in this one galaxy alone. This sun that we have, this star that, that we rotate around is just, a, just sort of a medium star within the midst of this vast galaxy. And of course, you know, the more you understand about physics and Einstein's fields of study, the more you begin to see the intricacies and the, and the, the immensities of all things. And, and, and Charles Misler is saying, here's a guy who's, who's looking at that, and, and when, he, when he hears talk about God that puts God in such small terms, he must think, blasphemy. Blasphemy. The Bible is full of passages that explain and confirm the supremacy of God the wonder and the majesty of God over all of his created works. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. To your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Why should anyone say, where is God? Who is God? The psalmist says, no, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whether in heaven or on earth, in the seas, in all the depths, whatever he pleases, he does. I want you to listen to what A.W. Pink, one of my uh, favorite theologians as well as Tozer. They're both A.W.'s, but they're different guys. This is Pink, not Tozer. He says this in his fantastic chapter on the supremacy of God in his book, The Attributes of God, which I highly recommend, by the way. But listen to what he says. He says, At God's pleasure, the Red Sea divided, and its waters stood up as walls. And the earth opened her mouth, and guilty rebels went down alive into the pit. When he so ordered, the sun stood still and on another occasion went backwards 10 degrees on the dial of Ahaz. To exemplify his supremacy, he made ravens carry food to Elijah. He made iron to swim on top of waters. He made lions to be tame when Daniel was cast into their den. Fire to burn not when the three Hebrews were flung into its flames. And thus, whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deep places. Again, quoting Psalm 135. He's saying, do you understand the supremacy of God over his creation? And by the way, in that quote, he's quoting from Exodus 14, number 16, Joshua 10, Isaiah 38, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 6, and Psalm 135. The Bible is full of these proclamations. There are even more passages that confirm and explain the supremacy of God over all of his created works. 
1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are all power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Job 42 says, I know you can do all things, God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you understand the, the weight and the glory of the supremacy of God as revealed to us here? This is what the Bible wants us to understand about, about who God is as creator. Trees are green and waters are blue because he said so. Cheetahs run and birds fly because God said so. Up is up and down is down because God said so. As creator, he gets to define the terms. He sets the parameters for reality. And because that's his position, all creation is obligated to submit to his authority because he has full ownership rights as the one who made it all. He made us all. So we've got to start here because everything starts here. We have to understand that, that there is something ultimate. Not just to assume this word God and what it means, but to understand there is, a, there is a being, an actual being, the God of heaven, Yahweh, the Lord, who exists and who is creator over all. Owner, ruler, authority. We were made for someone we were made for something more than ourselves. That's what he's saying here again in verse 20. These invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and everything that's been made, so we're without excuse to suppress that knowledge. This is the, the opening statement of who God is that we have, to, we have to grasp. Now, I've said already that gospel means good news. And if we begin with this idea that there is a God who's created it all, then I have to ask, is that yet good news? Well, the answer is not yet. Because if we know that there's this supreme being who has the power and the authority over all that he's made, and he happens to be a real ogre. He happens to be a vindictive. He happens to be uh, uh, harmful in his demeanor and angry all the time. That would not be very good news. It's, it's good news if there's a being like this, there's a God like this who's over it all, and he's also very good. And that's the, 
That's the next thing that we want to talk about here. I want to come back to Romans 1 here, reveal that, that, that Paul is showing God is creator, but he also fills in the gaps with more details about the nature of this creator. Secondly, God is righteous and he's holy. He's righteous and he's holy. Before I come back to Romans 1, let me read from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And then he says something about who he is as the Lord. I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord god has revealed himself not just as the supreme power but as a supremely good one who loves righteousness and justice in the world now when we say that god is righteous and holy I mean that along with being supreme over and above all created things, he has this nature, he has this character that is unassailable. He can't be charged with any wrong because everything that he does, this is what he's telling us, everything that he does is right and honest and just and good. Now think about this with me for a minute. If you have any idea of what I mean when I use words like right, honest, just, and good, if those words have any meaning at all, I want you to understand that those concepts in and of themselves point to the existence of a supreme power who is in fact good. The very fact that we understand the difference between right and wrong, the very fact that, that we have concepts of what is good and what is bad, what is just, what is unjust, that, that reality proves to us the existence of a moral standard. A moral standard that, that pre-exists us. A, more, a moral standard that is above ourselves. If, if that wasn't true, those concepts would be purely arbitrary. We'd have no definition for what makes something good or right versus bad or wrong. They're not arbitrary. We have this deep sense within us that, that there is a good and a just, and there's a, there's, a, there's a bad and an unjust. That's, I think, what Paul's getting at here in Romans 1 when he says we're, not, we're without excuse when we look around and we see, we see the world as it is. We see creation as it is. And we suppress the fact that there's a creator. It's not just trees and grass and water and mountains that ought to point us to that reality, but, but these, these virtues that exist of right and good and just. Human experience tells us this. And, and by the way, if you want a great uh, uh, summation of that argument... C.S. Lewis does a fantastic job of that in the first two chapters of his book, Mere Christianity. Let me, let me move forward here. John Piper puts it like this. He says, God has an infinite love for what is infinitely valuable. 
And therefore, he has an infinite hate for what opposes the infinitely valuable. Part of his goodness and his justness and his righteousness is that he opposes that which is wrong. His delight in praiseworthy things is unbounded. And his therefore his abhorrence of what is blameworthy is perfect. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 says, God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you cannot tolerate wrong. Because he is holy and righteous, every evil in the world is an exceedingly despicable offense against his holiness. And God is zealous for the holiness of his great name. Ezekiel 36, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which, by the way, you've profaned among the nations to which you came, I will vindicate the holiness of my name. Another Piper quote, God loves His holiness with infinite love and cherishes His purity. There's the starting point for understanding God and man in the world. If we don't start here, everything else goes askew, he says. If we don't feel a sense of awe and fear and admiration for the infinite holiness of God, which opposes evil and wrath with wrath and fury then all of our other feelings and thoughts will be defective at best holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory isaiah 6 do you understand god is not only supreme he's perfect he's perfect He's not only holy and righteous, he's good. The goodness of God endures continually. Psalm 52, 1. Again, one of my favorite 20th century theologians, this is A.W. Pink, again, not Tozer, Pink this time, wrote this. He says, the goodness of God respects the perfection of his nature. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting in it, excuse me, nothing is defective in it, and nothing can be added to it to make it better. The 17th century preacher Thomas Manton said this about God's goodness. He said, He is originally good, good of Himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation in and communication from God. He is essentially good. Not only good, but He is goodness itself. The creature's good is a super-added quality. It's added to us. In God, though, it is His essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is, is but a drop But in God, there's an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably, unchangeably good. For he cannot be less good than he is, and there can be no addition made to him and no subtraction from him. God is summum bonum. That's a Latin phrase that means he is the chiefest good. Did you know that the original Saxon meaning of our English word God is the good? 
That's what the word in English means, the good, God. God is not only the greatest of all beings, he's the best. So our understanding of this gospel that we're going to be talking about over these coming weeks, it's got to begin with God. And it informs us then, when it does begin with God, at the most basic level, that God is the creator, he's the rightful owner of all, and that he's infinitely holy, righteous, and good in his character. And he displays that goodness in his creative outworkings and rule over his world. Now, there's one, there's one more thing that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to save it for next week at this point, but it's this sort of bridge that, that we, if we understand that God is supreme and the creator and the ruler and the owner and that he's good and righteous and just, then the next thing we need to understand is then how does he relate to us? Not just how is he revealed in the cosmos to us, but how does he relate to us? And we'll cover that uh, again next Sunday. But let me, let me just bring some, some application home for a few minutes here. The gospel has to start with who God is. If I don't understand this, then, then the message will get confused. In fact, it'll probably get ignored. We, we forget to start with God. And the proclamation of our gospel kind of falls apart. A.W. Tozer this time. Remember again what he said at the beginning. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If we fail to tell ourselves or we fail to tell others the truth about God as presented by God himself, then at best, listen, at best, we are only able to presume upon God the attributes and expectations that we would have for ourselves. We wouldn't be able to rightly know or worship God. We'd be looking at some kind of made-up image of just ourselves. And of course, that's the great charge that God brought upon mankind. In Psalm 50, verse 21, he said, You thought I was one like yourself. But if our understanding of the gospel, indeed, if our understanding of reality itself, if if in that we begin with God as he's revealed himself and we see just how unlike us he really is, that's when we'll be able to be awakened to our great need for this gospel, this good news to ultimately save us from the sin that separates us from that holiness from him. And again, we're going to get into that a little bit more next week. John Calvin says this, though. It's an important bridge to next week. He says, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his own lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. So here's the good news. When we lay this message out, not only will our knowledge of God reveal to us our need for his grace in the gospel, which again, that's where the good news is going to come. It, it saves us from his, his righteous wrath against all that's wrong. But it's also good news because it's going to remind us of what we can be 
when we are recreated in the image of Christ. So, we'll spend the next few weeks fleshing out how this all works, but I want you to be sort of uh, preparing yourself for that by imagining a day when God's image bearers, when His people are regenerated to be what God is again, to be loving, giving, holy, righteous, and most importantly, in fellowship with Him, with the One who made us to enjoy His goodness forever. But none of that makes sense to me if I don't start with who He is. Now, I said in the beginning, I wanted to, to also talk about what this message is going to, how does it speak to the moment that we're in? All right? So we're in this quarantine. We're in this global pandemic. We're still maybe at the, at the peak of that. But we're in the middle of it. We're in the midst of it. And I know we're feeling all of the feelings right now. We're experiencing all of the emotions and the thoughts and the fears and the, the anxieties of it all. What's good news for us? Well, even if we just take what we've learned about God today and apply it to what we're experiencing now, what can it tell us? I think there's four quick things. The first one is this, that God's sovereign over it all. If God is the creator and the owner and the ruler of all things, that mean, and all things then obey him, all things are subject to the purpose of his will, his counsel, what can that tell us in the midst of a, of a situation that feels so chaotic and out of control? It tells us that it's never chaotic and out of control ultimately. And we'll talk a little bit more about why things are the way they are, what's wrong in the world, where, where does that fall, how does that happen, but, but we have to come back to this anchor knowledge that God is over it. So for us to say there is a God, and He is a creator, and He is the ruler and the owner of it all, there is always hope that He's bigger than the things that we see. That creation itself, the parameters of reality themselves, will submit to His will. And that, coupled with the second thing, is great comfort to us. The second thing again is that He's good. He's good. So what's happening around us, this is, not, this is not God's vindictive nature being poured out. God is not responsible for you know, inflicting the world with, with evil. He's righteous. He's just. He's good. So we can anchor ourselves in that great truth. He's in control. He's good. What do I have to be afraid of if I know those two realities? So if something's wrong, this is the third thing, it's not because of God. It's not because of God. I wonder if you're tempted to blame Him right now. I wonder if you're, if you're angry at Him right now. Don't be. God's in control, and he's good. If there's something wrong, it's not because of him. We'll talk about what's wrong and whose fault it is next week. 
but, but view God rightly in the meantime. And the last thing then is that this good news starts with God. Then the point is that it brings us back to him. I said before, there's lots of benefits to the gospel that we're going to talk about. Justification, forgiveness from sin, uh, being able to, 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 to be in heaven forever, right? Those are benefits of the gospel. But the good news is not those benefits themselves. The good news is, is God. He is the gospel. To know the, the one who made us as the supreme being who is good and to know him forever, that's the good news. The gospel starts with God. It gets us back to God. You know, I heard someone once say that, that those who would be happy in heaven if God wasn't there won't be there themselves. God is the good news. This one who is supreme and good. So let's be reminded of that this week. Even as we're just getting a glimpse of the, of the whole gospel story, we've got to start with who God is. He is good and he's in control. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your, your word. May, may this uh, today, even though it's a, you know, a, a longer message, Lord, may it provide us with those, those nuggets of truth about who you are that, that sort of um, compel us, Lord, to look at you more, to say, show us more of who you are, God. If you are truly supreme and you are perfect, then we can never search you out fully. And yet, Lord, you'd also reveal yourself to us so that you can be known truthfully. What a remarkable thing. <laughs> we can know you truthfully and yet never know you exhaustively. That gives us not only a lifetime, but an eternity of opportunity to marvel at who you are. So, Lord, compel our hearts to do that, even this week. Remind us, Lord, that, uh, that you are good and that you are in control as we deal with the day-in, day-out trials and anxieties of the week, of the, the moment. And Lord, help us then as we consider you and you reveal more of your goodness to us than to come back next week and find out what is wrong in this world. How do we fit into this equation of creation and the story of redemption so that we can rightly know what this good news really is here to address? Thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning and my brothers and sisters who are listening. God be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us this week. Look for opportunities this week to connect with one another. Look for opportunities to pray for one another. Let's continue to be the body of Christ during this difficult time of separation. Women, there's the adorned uh, Bible study for you on uh, Tuesday night if you're interested in joining that. Uh, check email or send one to the office here so that we can get you invited. And, uh, and let's, again, let's just fellowship together and care well for one another as we endure this trial. Let's end this morning by pronouncing our benediction together. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Go in peace.